hear the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And since it is this... Uh, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a, a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your holy word that at times says things that are so simple and clear and just give light and encouragement to us. And at other times says things that are strange and cryptic and seem so foreign to us. And yet also are filled with light and truth. And so we pray as we come to this passage uh, that you would be our teacher, apply these words to our life together, that we would see the beauty of who you are the goodness of your word, the goodness of the gospel. So we open our hearts to, in our minds, to study and to understand 1 Corinthians. We pray for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we are returning to our study of 1 Corinthians. We've been slowly going through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians over the last four summers. Actually, last summer I was gone, so we didn't do 1 Corinthians. The three summers before that, we did the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And this summer, we're going to be looking at chapters 11 to 14. And these chapters are a fascinating part of the scriptures. On the one hand, they have one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. If you know that 1 Corinthians 13 is the famous chapter on love, where it says, love is patient. Love is kind, you know, it's, a, it's read in many weddings and very well known. And, but also these chapters give us a glimpse into some of the most primitive worship settings of the early church. This, 1 Corinthians was written just 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we get just a kind of a foggy glimpse into what the earliest Christians' worship was like. And this passage I just read is probably the foggiest of all the passages in this section. It's maybe the strangest passage, the hardest to understand of any passage in the New Testament, maybe in the Bible. And uh, so if you 
were thoroughly confused as I read through those verses, then you're in good company, as most Bible commentators have been pretty baffled by this, by this passage. And so I've decided to spend two weeks on it, this week and next week. And I'll tell you, for months, actually, I had intended, when I planned to preach this passage, I don't know, a year ago, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a sermon on the questions around gender, and particularly gender dysphoria and the various you know, experiences of gender that people talk about and, and are debate about in our culture, you know, uh, transgender, gender bending, gender fluid, third gender, what, what do all these things mean? How do we understand them as Christians? And that sermon was supposed to be last week. If you were here last week, you know, I said, I have too much stuff to say. I haven't pared it down. I'm not ready to give that sermon. And part of the reason was because m- much of this passage is particularly about the distinctiveness about men and women and God's purposes in creation. And so before I could talk, talk about our cultural issues, we need to first talk about what does the Bible say about God making men and women and the meaning of men and women. And as I went through all of that, um, I found it was far more than I could handle in a sermon. And this passage doesn't really speak directly to some of the things we're dealing with in our culture. Some of the things that I'll say apply um, but I decided that it was too big a topic, and I need to probably save it for another time for the class. So uh, today we're just going to talk about gender in terms of what, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? But also, let me make one other comment. This passage also talks about the roles of men and women in worship. And our church is going to be making some important changes in our uh, worship service over the next month or two. Um, and our elders in our church have, for the last two years, been talking about this topic. And so um, this passage gives some insight into those changes. And so next week, I'm going to be talking about what those are, you know, leave you hanging till next week. So you gotta you got to come back, especially if you're a part of Christ Church, you want to come and, and hear about that. If you can't be here next week, you want to make sure to listen online. Uh, but this morning, we are getting just the beginnings of a theology of gender. And we're going to do that by answering two simple questions from this passage. What is the meaning of our genders? And second, how do our genders image Christ? What is the meaning of our genders and how do our genders image Christ? And, you know, as I mentioned, this is a particularly difficult passage and I'm only going to deal with some of the problems today and some of them next week. So particularly, I know one, many of you are wondering about the head coverings and all the hair topic. That's next week. So sorry. Uh, but um, we've got two questions that we're looking at together. So uh, let's get into it. The first one is this. What does the Bible say is the meaning of our genders, the meaning of being male or female? And the Bible says that our gendered Selves, our gendered body is a symbol. God has made you as a symbol, as an image, as a glory, as a reflection of Him. And that's the most fundamental thing that we have to understand about what our genders are. And I want to explain what that means, but let me first explain why it's important. There is a, a tremendous amount of confusion around the topic of gender currently in our generation. And because, especially over the last half century, our culture has said that gender is not something kind of natural or biological about being human, but gender is a social construct. 
And what that means is that we tend to think that gender is something, you know, part of our nature. Men are this way. Women are this way. But actually, you know, our, our culture says our definitions of what a man is like and what a woman is like are imposed on us by our culture at an early age. And so there are these categories, you know, men are macho and women are homemakers. And we, they're like these boxes or these molds that we put people in and we make them try to fit into these molds that they might not fit into. And our culture has said that, you know, human flourishing comes from people having the freedom to follow their hearts, to follow their passions, to be who they truly are. And so you have all these, if you have all these categories placed on you, it kind of suppresses who you're meant to be, our true selves. And we get suffocated in these molds. Maybe some of you feel that way. And so we said these categories, these social constructs, do violence to the human person. And so for the last 50 years especially, we have been deconstructing, questioning, challenging, um, seeing through these norms, these social constructs of what it means to be male and female. Now, you should know that the deconstructing of gender norms is something that the Bible does. Jesus does that. The Apostle Paul does that. You know, some of you might know the famous story where Jesus has Mary sitting at his feet, learning from him. And in the ancient world, a rabbi would never have a woman as one of his disciples learning at his feet. And Jesus is going against the culture. He's, he's breaking down these cultural norms. And actually, the early church, we know about the early church. One of the reasons the early church grew so rapidly is because the women of the Roman world who were flocking to churches that believed in passages like this one that we think are so strange because they said the church treated with women with such respect and such dignity. And in fact, you'll notice in the opening uh, verse of this passage, you see what it says in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now most of us, when we hear about the Apostle Paul he had these traditions that he gave to the Corinthian church and they're following. We think of traditions as kind of those restrictive norms, right? But the traditions that he gave to the Corinthian church are probably the basics of the Christian faith, things like Christian baptism. And this is the way the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 describes that tradition of baptism. He says this, For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the tradition was. The tradition said there was no male and female. And so there are some aspects of deconstruction, of seeing through oppressive cultural norms that Jesus and Paul and the Bible not only encouraged, but initiated. They started that whole movement. And so, first of all, we might be slow to be overly critical of the movement of our culture to question, like, well, you know, what, which social norms are, are placed on people that are unjust? But C.S. Lewis once said in his great book, The Abolition of Man, he said these words, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. To see through all things is the same as not to see. 
to see through all things is the same as not to see. What Lewis is saying is that to deconstruct everything, to be suspicious of everything, to see through ultimately everything is to be blind because you haven't seen anything. There's nothing left to see. That is where our culture is right now. We have seen through gender, and now we see nothing. That's why we have schools that are telling our children, you need to choose for yourself your gender identity. You need to figure it out for you. You need to decide for yourself because we have nothing to tell children about what it means to be male and what it means to be female because we don't know. And it is a staggering burden to place on children and adolescents in our society to say you need, they need to choose for themselves who or what they are. We were not meant to create ourselves. You were meant to have a meaning and an identity that was bestowed on you as a gift of grace from God. And when we lose track of that truth, we will lose our bearings. We're supposed to receive our identity. We're supposed to receive who we are from God. Now, in uh, one of the biggest topics in the book of 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthian church had received this freedom in the gospel. The gospel brought a tremendous amount of freedom to them. And they had begun, like our culture, seeing through everything, deconstructing everything. And as a result, they overly saw through things. They were losing their bearings. So, for example, Paul talks about earlier how, you know, they realized that idols, the false gods of the Roman Empire, were, they weren't even really gods. They don't exist. And they said, there's no real other gods except the one true God. So they would go into the pagan temples and they would worship in the pagan temples. And so they're now worshiping alongside the pagans because they said, we don't even believe in those gods. Or they would say, you know, Jesus has freed me from guilt. He's washed me of all my sins. And so then they go and sleep with temple prostitutes. Or they say, you know, we're beyond the kind of plain, basic teaching of the Christian faith. And so all they do in their worship is they speak in tongues in these intelligible ways, seeking ecstasy with God. No one has any understanding of what they're even talking about. And they have seen through everything, and they've become blind. And it's strikingly similar to our culture. What Paul is saying in this passage is, yes, there's neither male nor female in Christ. Yes, the world has, an unjust, has unjust social structures that must be challenged. But that must lead you to see that there is still male and female made by God in creation. Your bodies have meaning. Your bodies have been charged and filled with meaning by God. And you are making a huge mistake by ignoring this. You must see through the constructs, the cultural norms, in order to see the truth about what it means to be human. And so the question for us is this. What is the meaning then? What is the meaning of being male and female? What will we see? When we see through the constructs and we see to creation, to what God has made, what will we see? Well, you'll notice in this passage that Paul relies heavily on the first two chapters of Genesis. Look at verse 7 again. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. I know those verses have all kinds of problems in them. I hope to address some of them this week, some of them next week. But the basic observation from that verse is that Paul is observing things from the first two chapters of Genesis, and these are a few things he, he sees that it says there, that men and women are made in the image of God, that woman came from man and was made for man, that man now comes from woman and is dependent on her, and that all things come from God. And what's striking to me about these statements is that they don't talk about any of the normal generalizations that we make about men and women. You know, women are emotional and men are logical or, what, you know, whatever generalizations you have. There, are, there is some truth. We all know that men tend to be a certain way, women tend to be a certain way. But the Bible doesn't talk that way because it knows that we don't fit perfectly like that. And just because you don't fit into that characteristic doesn't mean you're not a true man or a true woman. But there is a summary theological statement that Paul gives us in verse 3, and this is what he says. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is making a parallelism there. And he's comparing these relationships that are symbolic with one another. Christ is the head of humanity, the husband is the head of the wife, and God the Father is the head of Christ. And when you put these comparisons side by side, you see that men and women each are symbolic of Christ in different ways. That is what it means. That's what our genders mean, is that man and woman represent who Jesus is. And uh, you do not understand, we do not understand our gender, our bodies, our soul, our personality, our humanity, until we see that our gender points, our sex points to something beyond ourselves. And we need to know what that thing is. We need to understand we are living in a symbolic universe. This is something that we have lost in our vision of what the universe is about that uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it this way. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Everything that God has made, he said, is charged with meaning, is singing to us about its creator. The world is pointing us to the majesty of God and his ways and his character and his purposes and how much more the human gendered bodies and souls that are made in the image of God. And so we're living in a symbolic world and the greatest symbol in this majestic world that is singing about God's glory is man and woman. Those are the most beautiful, the most meaningful of all God's symbols. And so that's a long answer to the first question. What is the meaning of our genders? There, many of you would answer that in different ways. What are men like? What are, what are women like? This is what the Bible says. Is we are symbols, we are images of who Christ is, and we image him in different ways. So that leads to our second question. How do our genders image Christ? And you'll notice in verse 11 that Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, that's saying in Christ, in the gospel, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus, when men and women are reflecting Christ to one another, they need each other. They're dependent on each other. Each has something that the other needs, and they offer that thing Uh, to each other in love and service. There's a deep mutuality. And what are those things that they offer to each other? 
Well, I struggled to answer that. This was, I think, my third version of this sermon. And uh, I think the best way to answer that question, what is, it, what is the distinct thing about men and women? What, is, what are the unique ways that we image Christ to one another? And the Bible says that men image Christ as heads and women image Christ as helpers. Men image Christ as heads and women image Christ as helpers. Both image Christ, but in different ways. And I want to explain each of those. First of all, what do we mean that men image Christ as heads? And the word head appears all throughout this passage. It's a major theme in this passage. Verse 3 says the head of a wife is her husband. Actually, or the head of a woman is a man. And the term head has two meanings that are both present in this passage. In the ancient world, head can mean source, and it can mean authority. And I think both those things are happening here. You know, first source, you know, we say like the headwaters of a river is where the source of the river. And verse 8 says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And this is referring to in Genesis 2, you know, the story where Adam falls asleep and the Lord takes a rib out of Adam and he creates a woman out of his rib. And so that's saying the man is the source of the woman and that's where she came from. But head also means an authority. And I know that in our culture, we have a real suspicion about the word authority. We almost always assume that authority is self-serving. That it looks like someone being in a position of power and making other people do what they want. But this passage is calling us to understand gender and to understand authority in the Lord, in Christ. And Jesus has transformed what authority means. You know, the Bible says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And so in Christ and in the gospel, what does authority look like? Well, I want to just highlight three things briefly. What does it mean for a man to, to have authority? I think this is, these things speak to men, whether you're married, whether you're a husband, whether you're in a family, whether you're single. I, I, I hope these can be apl- applied broadly. First, I think authority means speaking the truth. Jesus knew the word of God and stood for it. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the second Adam. If you go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, before the woman was made, God gave Adam his commandment, his word. He said, you can eat of any of the fruit of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This commandment was entrusted to Adam, and he was supposed to know it. He was supposed to internalize it. And so, you know, in the, when the serpent comes and starts lying to Eve in the garden, the man's sitting there, and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't stand for the word of God. And so I think one of the distinctive things of being a man is being a person of principle, a person of conviction. I know what the Bible teaches. I know what God has said about himself. And even if it's unpopular, I'm going to gently and lovingly stand for God's word and internalize that. I think that's an important thing if you're a husband or a father. Our family's going to go to a church that believes God's truth. We're going to teach God's truth to each other. We're going to learn God's truth from each other. We're going to structure our lives and shape our lives by God's truth. I'm going to know what that is. And even if you're not a husband or a father, maybe you're preparing to become a husband or father, now's the time to establish those convictions. And if something comes up, maybe this sermon, you're like, I didn't understand a lot of that, or I disagree with a lot of that, you better go search it out and find out what does the Bible see? Where is all this coming from? So the first thing about authority is speaking the truth. Second thing Authority is about using power for the good of others 
especially the weak. Authority is about using power for the good of others, especially the weak. And, you know, I was talking to Daniel this past week about this passage, and he had made the comment that men have power. It's always been true throughout history, and it's true because men physically are more powerful than women. That's just one distinct reality. And so they are in a position of power. If you are a man, you have power. Your words have power. Your body has power. Your presence has power. And power is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on what that power is used for. And I think, you know, a pastor once said that a good definition of Christian masculinity, of what it means to be a man, is using your power, using your strength for the good of others, especially the weak. That's what it means to be a man. I think the third thing about authority is sacrificing out of love. And that's what we see, of course, with Jesus, that he comes as the true king of the world with authority, and he sacrifices himself for his church, for his bride. And that's what Ephesians says about being a husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a defining quality of what it means to be a man is sacrificing. And, you know, many of you, when you became a husband, you know, I'm a hobby person. I, I love hobbies. I love sports or learning a new thing. And, you know, I'd fill my life with those things. And all of a sudden, you get married and you have children. You're like, wow, not a lot of time for the hobbies, you know. And, and not that hobbies are bad. You need hobbies in your life. But it, your freedom is greatly restricted. And it's a whole part of your life that is kind of dying to, in order to give yourself to sacrifice for these people that you have responsibility for, that you have authority over. It's a sacrificial thing to have authority. Now, what do you think about the word authority when you think about it in those three terms? Speaking the truth, using power for the good of others, especially the weak, and sacrificing in love. That's the authority. That's the, what it means to be ahead in Christ. The second question is, what do we mean by women image Christ as helpers? And again, that word comes from Genesis chapter 2, from the beginning of the Bible. And Paul references that here in verse 9, where it says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The woman was created with a distinctly relational component. She was created for another person. And I understand you might take offense at that, you know, and here that is saying that women are maybe not equal to men. You know, oh, the woman is just the man's little helper. Isn't that cute that he's there to help him, whatever he needs? That's not what helper means in the Bible. The Hebrew word for helper is generally used to describe God. You know, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 121, I set my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The Lord is the helper. It is a title of dignity and strength. And because God is a helper, we ask him for wisdom. We go to him for support. We lean on him for encouragement. And the Bible tells us that men and women are equally made in God's image, and the roles of helper, head and helper do not undermine that equality. And in fact, you'll notice one more thing about verse 3. This is an important part of this passage. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
God the Father is the head of Christ, and Christ submits to the Father. But one of the most important pieces of theology that the church has defended for centuries is they have said that Jesus was equal in power and glory to the Father. He was fully God. And so this is a mystery, but as much as God the Father is the head of Christ, Christ is still equal in power and glory uh, to the Father. And that tells us that for a woman to understand herself as a helper, as created for others, is not in the least demeaning. She is not less than the man. In fact, this title of helper in the gospel is dignifying. Jesus himself said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I'm not a woman, so I, I don't know how you hear word like helper. But one thought, I imagine taking that title into the various areas of your life. I'm a helper. You imagine in your workplace, if you're a boss, you say, my posture toward the people who work for me is I'm a helper. I help them. I want to build them up. Or the people I work with, or the, my, my, the person that I work for. I want, my, I, want, I want to be a helper. I want to be helpful. I'm here for other people. Or you imagine in, in a family to say, I am here as a helper. I'm here to help my husband. I'm here to help my children as they grow up. Or in the church, it's, I'm discipling someone else who's trying to grow in their faith. I want to help them. What a helper means is I'm called to build others up. I'm called to help others succeed and bolster them and strengthen them and encourage them. I'm called to believe in what they can become and help them get there. That's an amazing calling. And you might respond to that and say, okay, yeah, but what about the women themselves becoming great? They want to help other people become great? Shouldn't, uh, should they only help other people? What if they want to become leaders in the world and become great in the world? You know what businesses are finding more and more about the bosses and the great people who are really great leaders? They make other people great. They're helpers. <laughs> that's, and that's the secret that Jesus says in the gospel is those that humble themselves will be exalted. And that, that's what organizations need. That's what churches need. That's what families need. That's what businesses need. I think there's deep symbolic meaning in both of these for us as men and women. And so what is the meaning of gender? Gender is a symbol that God is loaded with meaning, that we are symbolically representing Christ to the world. And uh, we image Christ distinctly as, as heads and helpers. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that our genders and their distinctiveness should be celebrated. Verse 12 tells us that all things are from God, or more, more literally, all are out of God. Maleness and femaleness both come out of God, out of who he is, and reflect who he is. God is both head and helper. And it is in Jesus alone that we can become who God intended us to be. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you have made our selves, our bodies, our souls, our genders 
charged and filled with such meaning and such dignity. Lord, we want to understand these, to not fall into the categories that are imposed on us by a a sinful culture, but we want to receive your grace and represent to the world who Jesus is and the unique ways of being man and being woman. I pray for those who are here who might be wrestling with this topic and pray that this could be a discussion starter for them and that also you would lead each of us deeper into the beauty of what you say to us in your word that passages like these would not feel like burdens or weights but would feel like good news. And so we look to you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.